Romans 8, 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. Um, Eliza, I never knew your church had a homeless ministry. Um, I love Korean churches. Like Korean American churches, they're just so entrepreneurial and, you know, they, they go out of their comfort zone. I, I pastored at Youngnak, and Youngnak also had a, a robust uh, homeless ministry, but I, I'm just very encouraged. I, I had no idea that THMC does that. Um, but it's an honor to be here with you uh, today uh, to share with you uh, the message. Um, uh, Liza did share that uh, the, the theme of, that you guys will be jumping into is on uh, testimonials and how one lives out uh, one's faith. But uh, as I was praying and reflecting on, um, you know, just my testimony, I've given my testimony a million times. Uh, I can tell you my testimony about my addictions and all of that, but I, I think where, where we need to lay the foundation for testimonies is in our identity. And that identity comes from who we are in Christ. And so I felt the Lord telling me to speak about adoption um, because that is where we find our, uh, our sense of identity. So before we do that, before we jump into uh, this message, uh, please bow your heads with me and let me pray for us. Lord, uh, we thank you for um, the grace that you give us to be able to come together, Lord, as a family to worship you. Lord, this is a privilege to be able to bind our hearts together as one by the power of the Holy Spirit and to be able to hear your word so freely. And so, Lord, we just ask that here in this moment, Lord, Lord, you see our minds and you see our hearts. The things that are distracting us, we want to leave that out in the name of Jesus. We ask, Lord, that your word would pierce us. Lord, that it would encourage us. That it would convict us. Lord, and that it would move us to the mission of God. Lord, we thank you for THMC and, Lord, the work that you're doing through your Holy Spirit beyond what we can see with our eyes. Lord, we trust and know that you are doing something here. And so, Holy Spirit, make us aware of what that is and invite us into your mission, into this calling of uh, the church that you've placed here in Monterey Park. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, 
I pastored in a, a community called City Heights in San Diego from 2015 to 17. And City Heights, uh, if you guys are familiar with San Diego, uh, it's a small community. Uh, and uh, this community is extremely diverse. It's multicultural. And um, just on University Avenue, uh, it's just this one street that goes through City Heights, you'll find Cambodian restaurants, Vietnamese restaurants, uh, pho restaurants, taco shop, an Ethiopian market, Somali market, Italian gift shop, so on and so forth, in just a short distance. And this diversity, it's also reflected in the churches, where on the corner of 52nd and El Cajon, um, there's a Methodist church that displays uh, a sign for worship services in Cambodian, in Vietnamese, in English, in Mandarin, and in Spanish. Five different worship services uh, uh, in, in one church. And um, this diversity, uh, it has its roots uh, going back to the 1970s, where after the Vietnam War, um, an influx, about 50,000 Vietnamese refugees, they escaped Vietnam and came to Camp Pendleton to escape their war-torn country. And the 50,000 who came, they were placed in Camp Pendleton for uh, a short three months, but, sub but after that, they were asked to begin their process of assimilation into the United States. So for those who decided to stay in San Diego, the majority of them stayed in this community called uh, City Heights. And so what naturally happened was there were resettlement agencies, there were um, government agencies, there were uh, nonprofit organizations, immigration services, religious institutions, all popping up in City Heights. Why? To help the Vietnamese refugees assimilate into the United States. After that, Soon after, Syrian refugees, Ugandan refugees, Cambodian refugees, Ethiopian refugees, Somali refugees, they all began coming into City Heights because of the resources that were available to immigrants, to refugees. Ultimately, what happened in the past is that America adopted the refugees into the country, right? America adopted the refugees into the country. When we think of adoption, it evokes words such as relief, acceptance, rehabilitation, restoration, hope, right? It, 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 it evokes a sense of warmth within us. But the thing about adoption is that it always happens in the context of a horrible situation, doesn't it? Behind the relief, behind the the, the, the rehabilitation, restoration, hope, the new life, the opportunity. What is there? There's tragedy. There's poverty. There's war. There's this displacement, right? Before the adoption takes place, there is always some sort of unfortunate situation that is happening prior to the adoption. There's a sense of desperation. There's a sense of hopelessness which is what happened with the Vietnamese refugees. They were escaping a war-torn country. They were displaced from their country. They were experiencing poverty, so they came to America for a better life. And we see this today. Parents, they tragically die. And what happens to the child? The child is left alone, but the child becomes adopted, adopted into a new home for a better life or a woman who is in a, a, an abusive marriage, 
She escapes uh, this, uh, this, uh, this relationship with her child, but she's been so emotionally and financially damaged that she's not able to care for her child. So what does she do? She puts her child up for adoption, right? Or there's a teenage girl who gets, impre- who gets pregnated, but her parents want to save face for the family, so they demand her to put her child up for adoption, and that child becomes adopted into a new home. Adoption, it always happens in this concept, in, in this background of a horrible situation. In verses 1 to 11, leading up to our text, Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, Paul, he takes us through an exhaustive and detailed list of the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. That in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You and I, as believers and as sons of God, there is no condemnation. As believers, as sons of God in Christ Jesus, we are empowered to set our minds on the things of God and empowered to live a life that is pleasing to God. That in Christ Jesus, you and I are free from all of the laws of sin and death. We've fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. These are the promises that Paul lists out in detail, saying this is who you are in Christ Jesus. Then following these promises, Paul, he says in our text that we just read, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, out of slavery, out of fear. You see, what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 8, he's taking up in one hand and he's lifting up their pre-adoption. Then in the other hand, he's taking up their adoption. And he's saying, look, compare. He's juxtaposing the two and saying, look at these two. Prior to your adoption, you were dead. Prior to your adoption, you were a slave. Prior to your adoption, you were living in fear. Prior to your adoption, you were living in bondage. But because of your adoption, these are the promises that you have in Christ Jesus. Your salvation isn't a future thing, but it's right now in Jesus. You have the power to live according to all of these promises through the power of the Holy Spirit, because of your adoption. Well, our passage today, it compels us to answer two very straightforward questions, two simple questions. What were you saved from, and to whom do you belong? What were you saved from, and to whom do you belong? Because how we answer this question will ultimately tell us whether we are living our lives according to the flesh, or whether we are living our lives according to the Spirit. What have you been saved from, and to whom do you belong? I think um, in order for us to really appreciate Uh, Romans chapter 8, we need to have some historical context. And so uh, I'm going to be providing you some background on on the book of Romans. Uh, Paul's letter uh, to the book of Rome 
it was addressed to this church in Rome that was made up of both uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But this church in Rome, it was initially planted by Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians were Jews who had heard Peter's message when, when Peter gave his message on Pentecost and 3,000 were baptized. A part of that crowd were these Jews who came from Rome. They heard the gospel message and they took it back to Rome. They planted a church and this church, it, it progressively grew to become both Jewish and Gentile. But what happened was uh, Claudius, the Roman emperor, he, he kicked the Jews, all the Jews out of Rome. All of them got excommunicated out of Rome. And, and so this church that was planted by Jewish Christians, it became predominantly Gentile. It became predominantly Gentile. When the ban was lifted and the Jews were able to come back to Rome, they came back to their church. And when they saw their church, they began wondering, wait, why aren't they upholding our Jewish customs? What happened to all of our Jewish customs? And so they began demanding to the church, you need to start adhering to our dietary laws. Why aren't you acknowledging our Abrahamic lineage? Why aren't you following our Mosaic laws? They were demanding and demanding that they incorporate their Jewish heritage back into their form of worship. While the Gentiles demanded that they continue worshiping according to their philosophical and cultural norms. You see, as these cultures, as they collided and as they were fighting the Jews and the Gentiles, it was causing them to forget the essence of the gospel, their adoption, the core of the gospel, adoption. You see, these two groups, they were relying on their religious traditions, their positions of power, their influence, their cultural heritage to live out their faith, right? And these were the very things that they were once slaves to, to them both Jews and Gentiles, these activities, these religious activities, it seemed spiritual, right? Circumcision seems spiritual, doesn't it? It's a practice that had been happening for hundreds of years amongst the Jews. Following the Mosaic laws, it seemed spiritual. These were laws that were given to Moses, their prophet, directly by God to be lived out by his people, Engaging in theological debates and having this vast knowledge of who God is, it seemed spiritual. Right? Holding influence in the church, it seemed spiritual. And it seemed spiritual because these are the very things that you can see happening right before your eyes. You can see it. Right? If everyone is circumcised, all you need to do is check if they're circumcised and you'll see whether they're in or out. If they're following cultural norms, you'll see whether or not they're truly devoted to the church. If they're following certain laws, you'll see who's in and who's out. It happens explicitly right before their eyes, which was why the Gentiles and Jews, they were both demanding that they have their own respective ways of doing worship. 
But these activities, which appear to be spiritual, right, for good reason, it appeared to be spiritual, were actually works of the flesh. It was the work of the flesh. How scary is that? To think that you're worshiping God, to think that you're living your life to please God, then you get this letter from Rome saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're living your life according to the flesh. You see, the, the danger that the Roman church faced was that they were seeking to live out their faith in the power of their flesh rather than through sonship. So what Paul does is he reminds the first century church, this church in Rome, and our church today here, of our adoption. That God, he did not adopt us as a result of any work on our part. We had nothing to do with it, or because of our obedience to the law or because we have the right theological beliefs, or because we had the right religious schooling. You see, Paul, in the first chapters of Romans, he spends five entire chapters, and this is a letter. Imagine getting a letter. The first third of the book, or of the letter, pretty much highlighting the absolute hopelessness and the helplessness of both Jews and Gentiles, pretty much highlighting how they are both condemned, that they were dead, that they were born into slavery, and that they were both deserving of death. That is what Paul does in the first five, five chapters of Romans. You see, the Gentiles, they were immersed in the sin of unrighteousness, Right, malice, evil, all these sins that Paul lists out in Romans 1. While the Jews, they were immersed in the sin of self-righteousness, believing their holiness and Abrahamic lineage can usher them to salvation and have a right standing before God, as described in Romans 2. And he continues breaking that down throughout Romans. But it's even then, while both Jews and Gentiles were immersed in their sin, living a self-righteous and unrighteous life, that God came into the picture and he saved them. That God adopted them through Jesus while they were dead in their sins. I think something uh, important for us uh, to understand is that Paul's mentioning of the flesh isn't the flesh that we feel right here. I think we all know that, right? It's something more internal. He's talking about something deeper, right? The flesh he speaks of is the carnal nature within us that is naturally inclined to rebel against God. You see, the flesh isn't the explicit sins such as sexual immorality, such as covetousness, such as envy, that, that's not the flesh that he's talking about. He's talking about something that's innate within us, the inherent willingness to rebel against God, the willingness to hate God, the willingness to want to be God. That is what he is referring to when he talks about flesh. But here's the thing. 
The thing about the flesh is that this inherent nature, this seed that we've all been born with through Adam, it feeds on appetites that are essentially good things, things that God has given us, right? Because anger, sex, food, circumcision, ministry, career, money, right? These are all good and desirable things that God gave to us. Right? God, he designed anger. He gave us that emotional capacity to be able to step in when there's an injustice being done to our neighbor or to our fellow brother or sister. To step in and to be a voice for the voiceless. God gave us that emotional capacity to be angry, but to do it righteously, righteously to serve God. Right? He gave us sex to enjoy companionship. Right? He gave us careers as a way to serve the world. Right? God designed these natural appetites, and he gave us the ability to enjoy it and to steward it. But the flesh, what it does is it takes these natural appetites, these good things, and it perverts it. It taints it just a little bit. So that it no longer serves God's purposes, but it serves our purposes. You see, money is no longer a means to serve others, but a means to lord over others. Influence is no longer a means to empower others. Think about it. What did Jesus do? He used his influence to empower others, to mobilize an entire church or 12 disciples to go and plant churches. Right? But it becomes a means to exploit for selfish gain. That's what we do with our influence. Once our influence becomes perverted by our flesh, careers are no longer a means to serve God and to live out one's authentic self. God, he designed us each uniquely in the image of God, and he has a calling upon our lives. But rather than using that calling to, to serve him and to live out one's authentic calling, we use it to find identity apart from God. Here's the thing. At times, we might even convince ourselves that the, the fleshly acts that we commit are spiritual acts. Just as was the case for, case for the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. A life obligated to the flesh, it exists within both Christians and non-Christians, within Gentiles and Jews, right? Therein lies our commonality, that we are born into the flesh. The flesh exists within each one of us. Yet the distinction between the non-believer and believer lies in just one little thing. It's that you and I, we're adopted, and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to put to death the yearnings to serve the flesh. Not too long ago, um, I, I mentored uh, this young man named Hui, uh, and he was a, a new believer. And uh, Hui was very uh, a happy Go lucky. <laughs> Just a, he was a happy guy. <laughs> and uh, I loved being around him. Um, and we met very regularly, uh, probably weekly, uh, for discipleship. 
Uh, and every time he would come into my office, he would come in with like this huge smile, <laughs> this huge smile, right? Uh, he was always joyful. Uh, but as soon as he sat down, and I'm not kidding, as soon as he sat down, um, his smile would turn into a frown. And he would, he would say, oh, oh, Pastor Steve, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to, and I'd be like, dude, what are, you, what are you talking about? Just say it, right? And he'd say, I, I don't know what I'm going to do about some sin that I committed seven years ago. Right? For some reason, I'm reminded of it over and over again. It's driving me crazy. And so we go to the Bible, and we'd both be reminded that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins. Right? Then we'd go about our, our usual thing, and we, he would go leave the office with a smile, and uh, he'd leave reassured. And the following week, he'd come to my office, and he'd be like, again, Smile, right? And then frown. Pastor Stephen, oh, I don't, I don't feel like a Christian. Right? I keep messing. I'm really trying to imitate how he talks. I keep, <laughs> I keep messing up. Uh, I, I thought about someone in a way that I shouldn't. Uh, uh, I know Christians aren't supposed to have these kinds of thoughts, right? And so, again, we'd look at the Bible, and we'd both be reminded uh, that God is merciful, that God is gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so again, he'd leave reassured with a smile on his face, confident, more confident in his standing with God. In the following week, again, smile, frown. Pastor Stephen, oh, I feel anxious. Oh, I keep focusing on all the negative things in my life. I can't, I can't, I can't go to sleep. I'm thinking about like I, all these things. I feel like the world is just going to crash around me. And I feel anxious and it's causing me to feel depressed. And again, we turn to scripture and be reminded, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Week after week, Week after week, he came to me with these concerns. These concerns about his sins. These concerns about the voices that try to condemn him. These concerns of whether his life is truly pleasing to God. But if I'm to be completely honest with you, during those conversations that I had with Hui, I'm thinking me too. Me too. I also don't feel like a Christian at times. I also think about others in a way that I shouldn't. I also keep focusing on the negative things in my life and I watch Netflix hours on end so that I get distracted while I should be sleeping. Right? I also mess up over and over the same sin that I promised not to do my entire life. Me too, brother. That's what I'm thinking when he's confess confessing these things to me. Week after week, as Hui and I had our time and he shared his concerns, I saw someone who's living his life obligated to the Spirit. Obligated to the Spirit. He embraced the fact that 
When he accepted Christ, his fleshly desires weren't just going to disappear. He embraced the reality that when he gave his life to God, the devil was going to try and lure him back into slavery. Which is why he came to my office week after week. You see, every time Hui left our meeting, his confidence slowly began shifting from what can I do to what can God do? What can I do to what can God do? What do I need to do to what has God already done for me? I saw him relying less and less on his ability and strength to relying more on the Spirit of God. I saw him by the Spirit in each of our sessions commanding the Word of God against temptation. I saw him by the Spirit wielding the Word of God against the voice that condemns him. I saw him by the Spirit strike the head of shame with prayer. Every week I saw the shackles of lives that once enslaved him. The shackles of condemnation, fear, and shame unraveling and loosening its grip as he turned his focus away from what do I need to do to what has God already done. And I saw the spirit of sonship within him growing in his confidence of his adoption as he leaned into the spirit. In verse 17, it says, in our text this morning, it says, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer, provided we suffer with him in order that we also be glorified with him. You see, the battle between the flesh that exists within us and the spirit of God is a call to suffering that each one of us has been called to when we've been adopted. That is part of the suffering. As believers, our, ne- our, our fleshly nature is going to get provoked, right? And the devil isn't going to stop questioning, don't you remember what you did? Go back to your slave ways. It's easier. You're undeserving of that prayer. Why do you keep praying it? Right? He's going to say, try harder, go bigger, do more. Right? Some of us here might have done some horrible things that we just can't escape the tormenting voice of shame from. Right? Some of us might have broken up families. Some of us might have destroyed our own family. Some of us might have cheated with our way up the corporate ladder. Right? Some of us might have murdered either literally or just with our words. Either way, it's from the flesh. It's the same thing. Right? Some of us might have done something just this past week, last night, that you can still feel the weight of shame in the pit of your stomach. And so that tormenting voice, it says to us, I know what you did. You need to pray, pay for what you did. You need to try harder. And it's true. 
It is true. What the devil hurls at us is true. We do need to pay for it. We are worthy of condemnation. We are worthy of death. We are worthy of slavery. But as adopted sons and daughters of God, our response is distinct in that it doesn't end there. In that we say, yes, it is true. I deserve, yes, I deserve to be condemned. Yes, I deserve to be enslaved. Yes, I deserve death. Yes, I deserve all these things. But I have confronted death already. You see, 2,000 years ago, I was brought to trial for my sins. That is the power that we have as adopted sons and daughters of God. I was chained up, whipped, and condemned to death. And upon Calvary, I took my cross and was crucified to a wooden cross. You see, upon the flesh of Christ, my sins were nailed and I died. But on the third day, the Spirit of God, to which I am obligated, raised me from the dead. So it is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For I am an adopted child of God. You see, the spirit of God is not a spirit of slavery. It's not a spirit of fear. And for some of us, these might be feelings that we've become so used to that we don't know what it truly means to live in freedom. And so it feels normal. It feels normal to live in fear. It feels normal to live in slavery. Right, And in that place, the devil says to us, you're not good enough. You don't deserve it. You'll never get it right. This isn't for you. But let me tell you this morning, that isn't what God says to his children. He gives us a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. He says, let me feed you. He says, let me care for you. He says, let me carry that burden with you. He says, let me get it done for you. And it's in that moment, it's in that moment when we hear that whisper, when we realize what we've been saved from and to whom we belong that we find ourselves crying, Abba, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. In the context of our adopted life, we cry out, Father, help me do that which only you can do. Father, help me to surrender my life. We throw ourselves in full dependence upon the Father because we know we are hopeless without the help of the Spirit. Without the Spirit of God, we 
live our lives as orphans, condemned to death and fear. But when we hear the Spirit of God in that quiet place of meditation, of, of being still, quieting our hearts and our souls, when we're reminded of the promises of God through Christ Jesus, and when we look at who we were and who we are now, we can't help but to cry, Abba, Father, this gut-wrenching cry. It's a life-changing work of the Holy Spirit producing this cry. What were you saved from and whose are you? God says to us this morning, you are adopted children of God. You are my beloved children, my sons and daughters. You do not have to live in fear and slavery. And since you are adopted children of God, be led by the Spirit of God and not according to the flesh. Since you are adopted children of God, live under the lordship of God as he leads you into freedom and out of bondage. Since you are adopted children of God, cry out to God and enjoy your Abba, Father, and the free and new life he gives you. I know um, you guys are talking about testimonies. Um, how much time do I have? Am I done? Yeah? Okay. I was going to share a, a testimony, but that's okay. I'll let the Spirit speak as it does. <laughs> and trust it'll do its work. All right, let's pray. We see where we've come from. Lord, we see the wretchedness of our own hearts. Lord, we see that we are an undeserving of your grace. But Lord, still, you came and you plucked us out of darkness and into light. God, thank you. Thank you for lifting us up, for saving us. Lord, I pray um, over my fellow brothers and sisters here. Lord, you, you know us. Lord, you see us. Lord, you hear our prayers. Lord, this week, as they cry to you, Abba, Father, Lord, make yourself known to them. Show them the type of father that you truly are, the loving, the life-giving, the affirming father that you are. Lord, and as they hear and see and experience that, Lord, more and more, may we, may they, Lord God, 
become debtors to the spirit of God which dwells in them. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.